Mike, I was wondering, how did you figure out how many people to accept in this big white country? Well, there's a kind of a funny story involved in that one. And uh, when, when we were sent out, we were told something in the range of 3,000 initially. And uh, that seemed uh, like a, a reasonable number to start with, but as the operation moved on and on, we were, particularly in the early, once we got all the applications in, we could see that there was going to be, we were going to need more than, the, 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 3,000 3,000, 3,000, yeah, 3,000 individuals. Okay. So we, uh, we kept sort of asking Ottawa, uh, you know, what's the number, what's the number, and we d- didn't get any, any answer. So the, <coughs> the story is, the story is that uh, uh, we weren't the only ones who were curious about the number. That His Highness the Aga Khan, who was a, a good friend of Prime Minister Trudeau's, uh, went to Canada uh, around the, I think, in late September, to uh, interview, or to have a meeting with Trudeau, and talk about the, how the people would be settled. And I think he set up a little fund so that people could 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 be uh, could you know get loans for business and that sort of thing. And while there, uh, he uh, he had talks about numbers, but he he wasn't getting very far. And it 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 turned out that. Uh, he was staying at the the uh, government guest house at the, uh, the governor general's uh, uh, grounds, and there would be a lunch for him. But the odd thing was that uh, when it came time for people to be com- coming to the lunch, the prime minister was busy, and the minister was busy, and the deputy minister was busy, and the assistant deputy minister was busy, and the director general was busy, because that day in Moscow, the last game of the famous Canada Russia hockey series was being played <laughs> and so everybody was busy and so it fell to a group of, of people at the director level who are you know the salt and salt of the earth of any department of the directors and their immediate subordinates but these are not normally the kind of people who who are invited to go to the governor generals for lunch with the Aga Khan so they had kind of mixed feelings because the game was going to be on right during the lunch period so when they got to the uh, to the governor generals for this this elegant lunch with this very famous person, uh, the uh, they they were uh, one of them got went right in and, and saw the maitre d in the in the kitchen of the uh, of the governor general's uh, kitchen and guest house. Hmm? guest house rather than the guest house it was the governor general's guest house went in and saw the, saw the maitre d and said uh, listen. We need you. You obviously have the TV going in here. You darn right we do. Uh, so he arranged that for the for the maitre d to signal the score from time to time whenever he came in by holding up the, putting the the, the uh, Russian score in his left hand, the Canadian score in his right hand, holding up fingers. <laughs> so that worked fairly well. And as, as the as the lunch went on, and they uh, from time to time the the fellow would peek around the corner and hold up a couple of fingers, and and this the director who who arranged this would would kind of quietly signal to the rest of the guys what was going on. <laughs> so, at a critical moment, uh, around dessert time, and during the second period, <laughs> uh, the Aga Khan finally said, well, I'm still confused. I don't have a straight answer on how many people you're planning to accept. Now, they had been told, I'm told, they had been told to, off to sell them 5,000. But just as as 
the Aga Khan popped the question, the maitre d' stuck his head around the corner and held up six fingers. And the, uh, the director was, was so excited, he held up six fingers so his friends could see, and the Aga Khan said, oh, 6,000, that's splendid. <laughs> That's it, yes, so that's the story I was told, and uh, I'll swear it's true until I'm told differently. Uh, Now, the fascinating thing is, the day before the first of the flights had actually arrived in Long Point, and the people had arrived after a long flight, and they'd, you know, they'd give us something to eat and eventually put to bed. Next morning, they would get up and they they would go through their formalities, they issued clothing and onward transportation. But at one stage... They were all take, apparently taken into the gymnasium on the base and told there's a very important event going on. So the immigration officers, the soldiers, sailors, and all the immigrants sat in the gym and watched the game together. Wow. Now for, so, and I've run into at least a dozen people who were on that flight who remember being terribly confused about what hockey was, but realizing <laughs> that this was a great event. And when that, of course, when the score... When, when, when the final score was in and we had won in the last 30 seconds, they went as crazy about the victory as everybody else. So it's a, it's a kind of an interesting connection yes. between the Ugandans and, and the Aga Khan and that most famous of all hockey games in our history, all coming together at, 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 a, at a certain time. So I've heard many Canadian politicians say that during this immigration of the Ugandans, Canada won. So you won the hockey game, yeah, we won the hockey. and you won well, we, we, with a group of people that really loved this country. Yeah, yeah, and did very, very well. Yeah. So during your days working uh, in in the immigration office, office, there must have been some very sad stories or some very dangerous situations with the immigrants applying. Yeah. and the challenges with the army. Can you tell me? Yeah. Well, I think the one that, that I never forget was uh, happened uh, right, right, I guess it must have happened in the middle of October because we were right in the middle of things. We were interviewing like crazy. We were very busy. The machine was running very well. And we had a guy on the front desk, a, a, a fellow by the name of uh, Mo Benoit. And Mo had been sent out because he was a very experienced fellow, very tough, hard of gold, but tough as nails. Really tough. He'd been he'd, he'd been he'd been torpedoed in the Second World War by you know in in, in, in you know his ship sunk under. So this guy had seen a lot of different things. <laughs> and was, was not easily intimidated. And he and I had had a little bit of a tiff the day before over something. So I was not feeling very uh, friendly towards him at the moment. I was busily interviewing, and he shows up in the middle of my interview, and he said, he says, Mike, you somebody you need to see right away. And I was about to say to him, you know, excuse me. And I looked up, and Mo had a very red Irish kind of face, despite the French name, and it was as white as a sheet. And I said, right away, Mo, just give me a minute to, to finish this interview. So I quickly finished with the person that I was with, gave them their stuff, sent them on their way. And Mo arrives about a minute and a half later. He comes in first, and followed by a, uh, a Ugandan policeman, a big man, about six foot two, big, well-built man, nice-looking man. <coughs> with the blue policeman's hat, beautiful white khaki tunic, shorts, long socks, and boots you could see your your face in, polished lightly, and, and with a, a stand gun, a machine gun in one hand, and a chain in the other. And on the end of the chain, there was an Asian man, a fellow about, I would say, about five foot five, bit skinny, very smelly, 
uh, looked like he'd been sleeping in his clothes. Turned out he had hadn't shaved for, for at least a week, and look at looking very grubby. Uh, and so uh, the uh, so you know there's a bit of confusion, and, and uh, the the policeman says, "You called his number." And so <laughs> so apparently, so I said I said, "Okay, well I, I have to interview. It's confidential. Can you take the chain off?" He said, "No." So, so I, I, I got another chair and I made the policeman sit, sit be, the man sit in front of me at the desk. And the policeman sat right behind him, in, in, but back a little bit, and uh, holding, still holding on to the chain, which was held on to this man. And so I said to the, so I said to the, you know, leaned over, Doctor Man, what's going on here? And the story was, he was a, a Ugandan Asian. He was married to a Kenyan Asian woman. And he had decided that the smart thing to do would be to get her into Kenya while he sorted out what was going to happen to him. And at the border, the Ugandan authorities decided that since his wife was wearing her jewelry, that they were smuggling gold. So they took the gold, they pushed her into Kenya because she was a Kenyan citizen, and he was sent back to Kampala and thrown in the Kampala jail, where he was stuck in a cell with 50 or 60 other people. <coughs> And uh, a couple of days passed, and his family tried to get him out. There was nothing, of course, you know what it was like, nothing you could do. But he had managed, well, no, let me go along. Comes about uh, Wednesday, the next week, the family opens the Argus and is going, you know, looking down the columns of numbers, and they spot this, their son's number, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the Argus, you know, the system works. So they rush over to the jail with the, with the newspaper, and, and managed to see the warden. So the warden has the man brought up from the cells. The man reaches in his deep, the deep, deep pocket and pulls out this grubby piece of gray paper. And lo and behold, the number in the paper and the number in the newspaper are the same number. So the, the, the warden was very impressed with this and, and dispatched the sergeant of police to, to bring him over. So while I'm there, the, the man pulls out this very bedraggled piece of paper, uh, and there's the number, and wow. it matched up with the file, and I showed the number on the file to the sergeant, so that was even more impressive. So then the question is, so there he is, what are we going to do with him? So and so I thought, okay, well, I'd better rapidly go through the, the interview. <laughs> so he was under he was under 45, so he gets 10 points. Lo and behold, he's an auto mechanic. 15 points, a high point occupation, 8 points for skill. Uh, spoke enough English that I can understand, certainly. He, and then, uh, as a matter of, I just checked and realized he had an auntie somewhere in the Vancouver area, not in Vancouver, but in Langley or Chilliwack or somebody. Very rare, actually, for people to have relatives, but there, there was the name of Auntie Somebody. And uh, uh, when I totaled it all up, he made 51, and then I had to do his personal assessment, and I realized, you know, this guy laid it on the line for his wife. He's got to be first-class guy. He's got to get at least 9 out of 10 points. So added it all up. And he didn't even have to, I didn't even have to use my discretion. I, 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 he, he, you know, he made the points. And I realized, oh, is he an oppressed minority? Well, he looks like a minority and he seems to be oppressed. So I said, okay, you're in. So I said, but now we have to do the medical. So we go, leave my, our section, walk, walk across the big room we were in, to the, to the medical section. I was a little worried. Because the man in charge, Dr. Pichet and Roger uh, St. Vincent, didn't, you know, had, had, had issues going back to the 50s and the DP camps uh, that had never been resolved. No idea what they were, but they were there. And, and, and he was not always very cooperative, but he took one look at me and he 
realized, he said, well, I have a, happen to have a, a, a little gap in my schedule. So he, again, he says to the sergeant, I've got to, inter- I've got to examine him. Can you take the chain off? No way. So the doctor takes the, uh, the man behind the, the, uh, a curtain, closes the curtain. I'm standing there with the policeman and the gun and the chain. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I had noticed he'd obviously been in the Second World War because he had British-type uh, medals on, on uh, ribbons on his uh, uniform, including two ribbons that my dad had. So I told him, you know, so we started talking about his, about his dad and my dad and the war, and what wonderful years they've been. Eventually, Doctor Doctor uh, Pichet uh, pops his head out and says, "Well, I've done all I can do here. There's a few other things I have to do." And and then Roger Saint and I don't, I, I cannot remember what we did about the X-ray. Or any of the other tests, I sus- I think the doctor must have just, because we didn't have time to get a stool test or many of those horrible things that people had to do. Uh, anyways, Pichet said he's passed his medical, and Roger St. Vincent, who'd been watching all this from over the edge of the office, uh, Roger used to always wear uh, blue uh, uh, safari suits, and he was in, he'd been a, he'd been a fighter pilot, and he, and he walked like a like a fighter pilot. Uh, so he, he comes sort of marching over, boom, 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 boom. And he comes up and he says, Sergeant! And the sergeant sort of snaps to attention. He said, there'll be a flight coming tomorrow morning and, uh, and this man is to be at the tarmac in front of the airplane at 7 o'clock sharp. Do you, is that, is it, do you understand? And the guy says, yes, sir. And he salutes. And so Roger said, fine, make, make, make sure it's, he's there. And he turns around and walks away. And the sergeant is still kind of standing at attention. And I thought, well, how the hell do we get out here? And then I could have kissed Dr. Pichet. Pichet then says, oh, and by the way, sergeant, if you deliver him on time, you can bring your family in the next day and we'll give everybody a free medical examination. So big smiles. We're all friends. They drag this poor fellow away. uh, And uh, and, uh, I just write a note saying that he's to leave the next morning and his his visa will be waiting on the plane. So out he goes. So the next morning... Uh, Roger's waiting on the on the ramp going up to the airplane uh, at, at Entebbe Airport, and lo and behold, around the around the corner comes a couple of police cars, and out comes the man with the you know the policeman with with the sergeant with the gun and the chain and our friend on 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 the line. They come up the stairs, and Roger, who was a big broad man, sort of blocks the, the passageway, and he says, "Okay, the chains come off now." Sergeant takes off the handcuffs. And Roger just takes the guy and pushes him behind him into the plane. And the policeman that says he'd never seen an airplane, he said, can I have a look? And Roger said, I'm sorry, no. It's Canadian territory, and, uh, and you, you can't have a look. So he puts his arm around him, and they walk down the, down the, uh, the stairs, and he puts him in the car and shakes hands, and away they go. So that, that's a great end to the story, but it isn't the end of the story, because the next morning, about 9 o'clock... <laughs> Who shows up at the office? The sergeant in civilian clothes, best, you know, wife beautifully dressed, whole, I think six, six kids uh, scrubbed till they were shiny in their best clothes. And they were, as soon as they, and we, you know, we, we thought they might show up. So somebody spotted them right away. They were brought in. Everybody shook hands. Off they went to the medical section. They had all their tests and everything. Then they came out and they sat with us and they had tea and cookies and whatnot. 
and then eventually Dr. Pichet comes out with this big certificate that he made up of attesting <laughs> to their health uh, in, in official, you know, in all this official language, saying that they were in perfect health and signed uh, Dr. Pichet, Canadian medical team, Kampala, Uganda, boom, gave them, you know, a box of aspirins and that sort of stuff and sent them on their way. Wow. So that to me was, you know, was the, the, the moment, the incident, that that I won't I will never forget on that uh, because it was so we were so lucky that we had a plane going the next day and we were so lucky that our rules allowed us just to 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 reach in and if people needed to be grabbed and 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 put in the system the fact that he qualified perfectly was just icing on the cake we'd have taken him even if he hadn't and we did take people uh, I remember a, a young boy being brought in whose brother had been killed uh, the day before and we had him on the on the plane the following day. So that there was, there were, you know, we we had that kind of flexibility to move people rapidly, and uh, uh, but those, you know, nevertheless, I mean, I, I can recall during during interviewing this fellow, the a Sten gun's a very ugly little weapon, and it's very complicated because it has a magazine out the side, so it's very awkward to hold. The sergeant kept putting the thing on the floor, and then remembering he shouldn't do that. Well, every time the gun the gun came up. Everybody in the room, you know, just sort of froze, and then he put it down on his lap, and, then, and, and you know, and, and the, the tension in the room just went up and down as the gun went up and down. So, so, so when when you this this experience in your life, you go to Uganda. You're there for how long was that time? Uh, we were there eight weeks. Eight yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah, you know. uh, Have you ever experienced anything like that in your life again, in an immigration as an immigration? I no not Official. not in that immediate way. Uh, I've done a lot of refugee work uh, in the field and in Canada over the years, but never in that kind of a situation. But I'll tell you, it's 1972. Six years later, 1978, uh, uh, 79, mm -hmm. Canada was in the middle of uh, of responding to the boat people, yeah. and I ended up in part because of this experience being in charge of the task force in Ottawa that, that ran that big program. Oh. And it's, a, it's, a, it's really interesting because in the inter intervening years, we took a whole bunch of the things we'd learned in Uganda. Uh, there was no sponsorship system in, in those days, but you know, we received over the course of the eight weeks, we probably received a hundred telegrams and telexes from Canada from, from people saying, well, my cousin, my auntie, my nephew, my mom, or so ever, is, is, in, is trying to get to Canada. I, I am in Canada, and if you, bring them, if, if, if you bring them to Sarnia, where I am, I'll look after them. And I remember how getting those things really eased our, 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 the burden of responsibility from us. Because we could say, oh, here's someone we don't have to worry about. This was, and so when it came time a few years later to actually design the refugee sponsorship system, I really had, and, and, and my team was, 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 took the lead in that, I was really able to sit down with them and talk about how the, the psychological importance, both in terms of uh, to the people themselves who were going to friends in Canada, and what it meant to us as people doing the selection to know that in this case, this person is going to get family care when it's not going to fall in the arms of the bureaucracy or some agency. There'll be living, breathing relatives there to receive them, and therefore we need to ensure that in the selection system that gets a very heavy weight. Mm -hmm. So that had a, had an impact. The the oppressed minority idea 
eventually became part of Canadian law. Still to this day, we have, it's not called that anymore, but to this day, we still have that provision in our law that allows us, when the government tell, says, because you don't want this being done freelance, when you're going into somebody else's country, but when the government can say, okay, we designate that country, immigration officers can take people out, out of that country as if they were refugees. Uh, the student refugee program that the World University Services of Canada has, has run for the past almost 20 years, and which, uh, which has brought more than a thousand refugee students to Canada, was born out of an experience in Uganda, where, where one, afternoon, one, one day a Canadian professor from Makerere University said, you know, I've got, uh, he said they had something like 30 uh, students in the medical faculty, and uh, he said, you know, they have, no, they have nowhere to go. What, what do you suggest? And I said, well, why don't you get in touch with, with your faculty at home and see whether something can't be arranged? Well, he was back within three days with a letter from the president of the Association of Canadian Universities and Colleges saying any Ugandan-Asian medical student who comes to Canada will be found, uh, will be found a place in Canadian medical school. Wow. And this ha I remember this happened right at the height of things. We were very busy. We had no openings. And uh, a rather bizarre day, I, I went to Roger and said, you know, well, can, we, can we see them? And he, he said, you can see them, Mike. But he said, there's no room in the schedule. If you want to see, open the place on Sunday and see them, go ahead. You have my permission to do so. But you, the staff are tired. The, the Canadian staff are tired. You want to do it, you do it yourself. So I sat down with the professor and said, I guess we're going to have to deal with these people in a bit of unusual way. So they came in on Sunday morning about 10 o'clock and I deputized the, <laughs> didn't have any authority, but I deputized <laughs> the professor and we interviewed them, I interviewed them five at a time. I showed the professor how to prepare, you know, how to set up the files and gather the information and, and I had three and he had, he had two and we, you know, we asked this question, we asked this question and then of course I, do, I did all the signing and then, and then we, we whipped them all through. I think it, it, it took, you know, took a morning but I got through the 30 of them in jig time and they all went off all but one of them uh, went off to Canada, and I know that about uh, they had a uh, an anniversary dinner about four or five years back. I was yes. as, just as I was leaving the country for somewhere, I got word they invited me to come to dinner with them. And oh. unfortunately, I, I really regret I wasn't able to do it. But my sister was one of those. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, they they all did extremely well, and uh, you know it's a bit unorthodox to interview them five at a time, but you know. Uh, if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Have, they would have been. You know, we would have had to wait till the end. And they, you know, people, you know, people when they had the opportunity to need to to leave, we saw that this strange phenomenon very early on. Everybody wanted to get an interview, but didn't want to leave just yet because they had things to do. And then there was a period of time where uh, the number of people who wanted to go and the number of people we were pushing to the machine were in perfect balance. But then when we got to the end. It was it's, too it's, many. Well, well, what what happened was people started to disappear. Oh. Uh, people that hadn't weren't, weren't called early in the process uh, had had made made decisions and gone elsewhere, and so we we started. To, you know, we typically would call fifty people a day for interview. Well, by the end, we would put two hundred name two hundred numbers up, and maybe get a day's work out of it because people, as we got towards uh, towards the beginning of November. We found a lot of people had decided that uh, they, they couldn't wait uh, and, and had moved on. And of course, over the next mm -hmm. over the next two or three years, we must have brought another 1,500 people in 